Turn to the book of Jude, the book of Jude chapter number one, the book of Jude chapter number one, and there's only one chapter, but this book has a lot of information that's packed in one chapter. It's one of the smallest books of the Bible, but yet it's one of the most powerful books of the Bible. And so it's one of the, it's, it's towards the end of the Bible, before the book of Revelation, and uh, this book is packed with information that is, could be transformative in your life if you look at it in its correct contents. And so uh, let's look at it, but before we do, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us tonight as we endeavor to look at this. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the Word of God to us. We know that there is only one revelation but there are many illuminations of the one revelation. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the word to us tonight and that, uh, that the word of God, the truth of the word of God will be reinforced to our spirit and our soul. And everyone shouted a great big amen. So the book of Jude tonight, um, and, and I'll just recap just very, very briefly about what I said last week. And so for the sake of time, I won't review a lot because I think that's unnecessary. You can go back to the live stream or go to the website and listen to it. But I do want to pinpoint a few things that I think is important and noteworthy to pinpoint. The first thing that I want you to see is that the author of the book of Jude is actually the half-brother of Jesus. I think that's very significant as you read this narrative and you look in its context, I think this is very significant because Jude, verse number one, he does not even refer to himself as the half-brother of Jesus. Look at it. Jude, verse number one, there's only one chapter, so you see there, he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus. Now, I'm sure that he could have referred to himself as the half-brother of Jesus. And if there was anything to boast about, that would be something to boast about. If you were the half-brother of Jesus, how many would boast, boast about that a little bit? That, that's something to boast about, to be the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't boast about being the half-brother of Jesus. He refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other translations would read it a slave, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And so um, I thought about that, and, and it's interesting to me that the Scripture says in John, John chapter 7, the book of St. John, I want you to see something here because obviously something transformative happened in Jude's life. Something transformative. I'm not sure what happened, but if you look at scripture, something happened that transformed Jude's life. And you will see this, John, St. John chapter 7 and verse number 5. And I want you to see it just for a few moments. And um, chapter 7 and verse number 5. And I want you to see just a phrase here. Now I want you to go back and read the verses before it and verses after it. But look at verse number five. John records here that even his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers did not even believe in him. Can you imagine that? Here is a man who is appointed and anointed by God to be the savior of the world, walking in his uh, manifest in his glory, performing miracles, and his own brothers did not believe in him. But the scripture is clear that his brothers did not believe in him. But it's ironic that something happened to Jude from, from the book of John to Acts. Something happened within him, and I would suspect it was his resurrection that changed Jude's understanding, changed Jude's perspective about Jesus and his heart towards Jesus. Because if you go to uh, Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 14, you'll see that Jude is listed here, but he's also, it's, it uses another word, Judas. Now the word Judas is also translated as Jude. So it's the same person here, uh, and the, his brothers were recorded to be in some of his brothers were recorded uh, being a part of that company in the upper room before the Holy Spirit descended upon those disciples. And so here you see the mother of Jesus there. You see, uh, you see all of them praying. Verse number 15. You'll see Jude chapter 1 verse 15, I think. Uh, let me go there. You'll see them listing all the brothers that's listed there. Jude chapter 1 verse number 13 is where it's listed. And then verse number 14. So chapter 
uh, yeah, Acts chapter 1, verse 13, Acts 1, 13, it lists a few people that is in the upper room, and Judas is recorded there. Not Judas Iscariot, but it's also translated as Jude, which is the half-brother of Jesus, and that's Acts chapter 1 and verse number 13, and then you see verse number 14, that they continued, all of them, was continue in prayer and supplication, the women and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. If you could possibly find that scripture for me, that would be wonderful. Acts 1 verse 13, because I want you to see it. Acts 1 verse 13, I want you to take note of the people that was found in the upper room before the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, that, that company of believers. And so I would suspect that from the book of St. John, where it said that his brothers didn't believe in him, to the book of Acts chapter 1 around verse number 13, you find them all assembled in the upper room. Something happened to Jude. And I would believe that he saw the resurrection or he spoke to Jesus after the resurrection. He knew of the resurrection. He knew it was powerful. He knew it happened. And it was transformative in his life. He had an experience with Jesus Christ. He had an experience with his half brother. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now let me say something. Knowledge is important and I believe that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. I believe you should love the Lord with all your heart, with your mind, your hands and your feet. You, discipleship is about Jesus having all of you. You know, and sometimes as Pentecostals we think that we need to check our minds out at the front door as if our minds are not important. God gave you logic. He gave you reason so that you can use it for the kingdom of God, so that you can function, so that you can bring God glory, so that you can use your gifts and your callings for the, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And all of that's good and important, but also having an encounter where your heart is touched, I believe is important as well. And, and Judas here, or Jude, had an encounter with the Lord, even though he didn't believe. And that's great hope for us, because there's many people that don't believe in the Lord, but they can have an encounter with the Lord that can be transformative in their life. And so we come to the book of Jude. Here's the half-brother of Jesus. He refers to himself as a bond servant or a bond slave. Here is a man who doesn't even believe in Jesus, has a transformative work of the Holy Spirit in his life, and now he refers to himself as a bond servant or a bond slave. That is how you know your heart has been touched. That's how you know that your life has been changed. When you have a spirit of humility, when you're referring to yourself as a slave, you're referring to yourself as a servant. You're not puffed up in knowledge. You're, you're not puffed up in titles and positions, and you're not walking in pride. Here is a man who had an encounter with the Lord so much that he refers to himself as a bond servant or a bond slave. That, that's how you know that the Lord has transformed your life because you are a servant. It reminds me in the book of Luke about the, uh, the parable, uh, reminds me the story of the the prodigal son, how the prodigal son left and took his inheritance, took everything he had, went to a far country. Then he came to his senses and came back to his father. And what did he, what happened? His vocabulary changed. When he left the house, he said, give me my inheritance. But when he repented and came to himself, he came back to his father and said, make me a servant. Make me a servant. The prodigal son had an encounter with the Lord. He had an encounter. He came to his senses and his attitude, his demeanor, his spirit changed from give me to make me a servant. And that's exactly what happened to the half brother of Jesus. Here is a man who didn't even believe in Jesus, who somehow had an encounter with the Lord. He's in the upper room praying. And now he's writing a book about his half brother and refers to himself as a bond servant, a bond slave. Listen, God exalts the humble my friends. He exalts those who walks in a spirit of humility. And that is why he doesn't refer to himself as the half brother of Jesus, because he has nothing. He has nothing to prove. He's not going to he's not going to base his epistle up on his position. He's not going to base his letter upon his position because he doesn't have a prideful heart. He's not walking in a prideful heart. He's going to let the letter stand by itself because the Lord is inspiring him through the Holy Spirit to write this epistle to these believers. So... I want you to see that this book is uh, is a sister. I would, excuse me, is a sister to the book of Second Peter chapter two verse one. 
Second Peter chapter two, verse number one. I want you to see this. Second Peter chapter two, verse one. It's a sister book to Second Peter. I want you to look at verse number one. Now, many people believe that the book of Second Peter was, written, was wrote before the book of Jude, because here in Second Peter, Second Peter here, Peter is addressing that there's a problem with uh, false prophets who are secretly coming into the church. Uh, so he's addressing that these false prophets are coming. You know, they're coming. But you see the book of Jude, you see that they're, they're already in the church. So obviously, Second Peter is wrote before the book of Jude, and so you'll see that there, these are sister books dealing with the same issue, dealing with the people who are apostates, dealing with false prophets coming into the church, and primarily dealing with Gnosticism. Remember, that is the first heresy or the false teaching of the church. And what was Gnosticism? Many, there's many different <coughs> strands of Gnosticism, many different beliefs, but one of their beliefs that they propagated in the church was that Jesus didn't have a physical body. And we looked at that last week, and we're not going to look at that right now, but but, but they, they propagated that Jesus didn't have a physical body. That was one of the teachings that they tried to spread throughout the church. And I said this last week, but I think it's noteworthy to say it again, that when you look at Second Peter, when you look at Jude, when you're dealing with the problem of false prophets and false teachers coming into the church, and then you're looking at believers who are walking away from their faith, there are two things that the enemy primarily did in the New Testament to believers. Number one, it was the persecution of saints. And number two, it was the perversion of their faith. That is very important for us to see this. There's two things that you see primarily working against Christians in the New Testament. It's either the persecution of saints or the perversion of the faith. If the enemy couldn't persecute them physically, he was going to pervert the faith. He was going to twist the faith. And that is why the devil is called the deceiver. He, he, he's the trickster. He's going to deceive you. If the truth can make you free, then it must be a lie that will bind you up. So there are two things that the enemy will do, especially in the New Testament. It's the persecution of saints and the perversion of their faith. And that's the devil does the same old tricks even now. He has nothing new. The devil doesn't have anything new up the sleeve. He doesn't have new, anything new in the bag. He does the same thing even now. And there are multiple people, multiple thousands of people being led us straight every week because something looks good, something smells good, it looks like God, they prophesy, it looks godly, but you've got to go by the truth of the scripture and you've got to judge things by the scripture and not necessarily because it gives you goosebumps. Can I hear an amen? And it's interesting that we think things are anointed if they give us goosebumps and you cannot think something's anointed because they give you goosebumps. That is not the anointing. The scripture says the anointing destroys the yoke and lifts the burden. That is the anointing, not because something gives you goosebumps. I have been in a lot of church services and I have participated in singing songs that really wasn't biblical, but it really did give me goosebumps. So you can't go by goosebumps. You got to go by the authority of the word of God. So Let's look at the, the book of Jude just for a very few, for a few moments, and I want you to see something. Jude, so he's the half-brother of Jesus. He refers to himself as a bondservant or a bondslave of Jesus. Doesn't base his epistle up on his position, but bases his epistle simply because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, and he's urging believers to continually contend for their faith or war after their faith. And so I want you to see that there are two things that he says here in verse number three. Look at verse number three, Jude verse one, verse three. He says, beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I find it necessary that I should exhort you to contend earnestly for your faith. Contend is another word for war, war earnestly, or can fight for your faith, uh, fight for the faith. He says that once was delivered to the saints for certain men crept in unnoticed long ago, marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn to the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says two things are happening. He says, number one, he says... <clears throat> They're turning the grace of God. Number one, they're turning grace into something that's cheap. 
teaching cheap grace. They're turning the grace of God into lewdness. It's, they're giving you permission to live the way you want to live and putting a stamp of approval on it with the word grace. So talking about cheap grace and also denying the master. He says there's two things happening. He says they're walking in lewdness. They're, they're, they're turning the grace of God into lewdness. They're, they're, they're giving you permission to live whatever life you want to live and they're putting the stample of approval on it called grace. And number two, they're denying the master. Now, I would suspect that the reason that they're denying the master is because of the context. They're not denying the master because they don't have faith in the master. They're denying the master because they're denying the doctrine of Scripture, which is that Jesus is not only a man, but he's also God at the same time. That's, that was one of the doctrines that was being propagated. They're denying the doctrines of Christianity. And so if you deny the doctrines of Christianity, you're denying the master. Master. Amen. Amen. I heard somebody once say several years ago, boy, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like theology. Can somebody just come up here and slap me? I love Jesus, but I don't like theology. Please don't say that because that you sound really ignorant when you say that. Don't say that. I love Jesus, but I don't like doctrine. Well, how do you think you know anything about Jesus if you don't know theology? How do you think you know anything about Jesus if you don't know doctrine? The scriptures is 1,066 pages and it's, it's full of doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that Jesus went throughout Galilee preaching and teaching the gospel. Preaching's real good, but we can never forsake teaching. And so, and so they were teaching this cheap grace. You can live whatever way you want to live because God loves you. Boy, isn't that what's happening in our culture right now? We want to put a stamp of approval on everything because God is love and there is grace. It's what we call cheap grace. And number two, they were denying uh, the, their master. They were denying their master. In other words, they were teaching a grace, a grace that does not lead to a changed life. That's what they were teaching. They were teaching a grace that does not lead to a changed life. If you have been really touched by the Lord, if grace has really uh, penetrated your heart, then it will lead to a changed life. But that's exactly what they were teaching. They were teaching grace without it changing your life. And that's exactly what we're, that's where we find ourselves in right now. We find ourselves in a, a Christianity that likes to teach convenience of safety and security. Uh, and, and overlook our spiritual condition. We want to encourage people to live any life that they want to live because we want people to be comfortable. We want people to be accepted. We don't want to lose people. And so for the sake of losing people and for the sake of our tithe and offering not decreasing, we preach grace and love as a stamp of approval for people's lifestyle. But I want to say this, that when we become loose in our convictions, when we become loose in our praying, when we become loose in our values, and we become loose in Bible doctrine and theology, then loose will always lead to loose. We will lose in the end. If you are loose, you will lose in the end. You will lose. It's not... We can't be loose in our convictions, can't be loose in our doctrine, can't be loose in our theology. I know people that won't even come to church on Wednesday nights because they don't like teaching. They, they, they've told me that. They just don't like teaching. They like for someone to preach to them and scream to them over the microphone. And isn't that sad? Yeah. It, that, that's the culture that we live in. That's the culture that we live in. Pastors have to fight against the culture because we have been so programmed that we cannot sit through a church service and listen to someone teach because our minds have been filled with garbage all week and 
teenagers have been playing with video games all week. Our minds have become so mush that we can't comprehend anything that's being taught or preached because the devil has so tormented our minds that we can't comprehend. And so we, we live defeated lives because the Word of God has not permeated in our hearts and our souls. It has to take root in our heart. We, we, we like the, we, we, we want, we, we want, we want the feeling, but we don't want the commitment. We want Christianity without commitment. We want the benefits of salvation without the cost of discipleship. We want God, but we don't want the rules, do we? We want the responsibility, but we don't want the obligation. And so therefore, we live a defeated life. Uh, this, is, this is true. You can do your own research, and I have experienced this firsthand. But the modern secular society, the modern secular society that you and I live in, the worldview of spirituality is this. I believe in a higher power. Okay? I believe in something. I am spiritual, but I am against the organized church. That is the modern secular society that we live in. People are spiritual. They will say they believe in something or a higher power or something exists or an intelligent force. But they do not want to be associated with organized religion. They don't want to be associated with commitment. That's what they're saying. I believe in God, but I don't want to submit myself to something that's organized. I don't want to submit myself to something that's going to cause me to be committed. They want to be spiritual, but they don't want to be affiliated. Can I just hear an amen in the building? Wave your hand. And how many knows that's true? That's the culture that we live in. And so therefore we look around, we see empty pews on Wednesday nights and, and services because people are spiritual. They'll use the phrase, I, I can pray at home. You can pray at home. You can, honestly. You can have church at home. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Lord requires us to be a part of his body. And I know that we're part of this COVID pandemic thing right now. And right now there's an excuse for people to stay at home, but that is not a lingering excuse. Can I hear an amen? And so I understand that, that we're in this situation, but let, let us understand what I don't understand is people staying away from church and I see them at Walmart on Monday afternoon. And I see you at Lowe's. And you're posting on Facebook that you're down picnicking down the street with about 50 people. If you can do that, then you can come to church because me and Pastor Brandon spread the seats out for you so nobody can touch you. Can I hear an amen? But see, that's the culture we want to live in. We're spiritual. But don't you dare tell me that I need to be committed. It's kind of like, I want to be married to Jesus, but yet I want to spend, I want to, I want to, you know, I don't want to come home to my wife at night. I don't want to wear the wedding ring, but I want the benefits of marriage. I want you to lay with me when I want you to lay with me, but that I want the benefits, but I don't want to be committed to you. And that's exactly what the church is. I want the benefits of the church. I want you to preach my funeral. I want you to be there when I'm dying. I want you to do this. I want you to do that, but I don't want to be committed to an organization. I know there's about 30 of us tonight, but this is good preaching. I don't want to be. See, that's the modern secular society that we live in. And you see, and you, we can give all the excuses in the world about how bad the church is. Well, let me just stop and th tell this. You're not perfect either. So when you make your whole list of how bad the church is, I want you to turn around the paper on the other side and make the list of everything you've done in your life too. So there is nothing imperfect. And no matter how bad the church may seem to you, it is not your spouse. It is his spouse, and he still loves it. Can I hear an amen? God still uses the church. He still uses it. The church has done some things down through the centuries that I blush at. The church has done some things in the name of God that I blush at. And we should, we, we, should never, we should never do some of those things in the name of God. I'm sorry for him, but it's still his church. And he still uses things that's broken. He still uses things that's flawed. He still uses things that's messed up. And I'm glad because I'm a living example. He uses things that's broken. Amen. I'm glad he uses things that's broken. But that's the modern secular society that we live in. And Jude is addressing this problem. He's addressing that people... 
are living in cheap grace. They're denying the Lord. In other words, you know what he's saying? He is actually saying that uh, he's saying, let me just stop a few moments and address this salad bar style Christianity. That's what I refer to the salad bar style of Christianity. It's the spiritual but not affiliated Christian, you know. In other words, let me pick what I want to believe, and you, the organized church, will not tell me what to believe. I will pick what I want to believe because this is the salad bar. If I don't like that, I am not going to believe that. If I like this, if I want to fill my plate with chocolate, I'll fill it with chocolate. You understand the concept. But nobody is going to tell me what to believe. And that has, that has done more. The perversion of the faith has corrupted the church more than the persecution of the saints. The persecution of the saints makes the church stronger. If the devil can't get us physically, he's going to try to twist us, twist the doctrine internally. He says, he says, verse number four, he says they're creeping in. He says, why are they they're creeping in? What? Unnoticed. Well, what did Peter say? Second Peter. Remember what Peter said? Second Peter chapter two, verse number one. So Jude says that he's they're creeping in unnoticed, right? Everybody say unnoticed. They're creeping in unnoticed. But what does second Peter say? Second Peter chapter two, verse number one. He says there are false prophets among us, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So you, you, you see the M.O. of these people. They're secret. They're coming in secret. They're coming in unnoticed. They're secret. They're bringing in. And that's just how the devil works. He doesn't come with a pitchfork and, and a red cape. He doesn't do that. He comes in secretly to twist things, you know. And so he says they're denying the Lord that brought them even and bring on themselves swift destructions, heresy. And he gives he starts to say. These people, these false teachers that's coming into the church, and what are they doing? They're, they're teaching cheap grace. They're denying the Lord. And what, what does that mean, they're denying the Lord? They're denying the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the humanity, the divinity of Jesus. They're denying the doctrines of the church. He says, but they're coming in secretly. They're coming in unnoticed. Even Peter addresses this issue. They're coming in secretly. They're coming in unnoticed. And then verse number five, he says, but I want to remind you, Jude verse number five, he says, I want to remind you of some old and new apostates that's in the church. I want you to remind you of some old ones that's happened. Apostates, those people who turned away, apostates is those people who have turned away, not apostles, apostates, people who have turned away from the faith. He says, I want to remind you of some old apostates. I want to go back in Scripture and remind you of some people who have walked away or a group of people that's walked away. And I want to also remind you of some new ones that's happening as well. He says, verse number five, he says, I want to remind you, though you once already knew. I love that phrase. You know why I love that phrase? He says, I have something old to tell you. That's what he's saying. I have something old to tell you. You already know this. He's saying this because false teachers want to tell you something you've never heard. Do you see that? False teachers want to tell you a secret, something that you've never heard. But Jude is saying, listen, I'm not coming to you to tell you something new. I'm telling you something that you already knew. So let me just stop here and preach a little bit. Whenever you hear somebody get up and preach and they're trying to woo you with something new, you better be careful. Because there is nothing new under heaven. Jude is saying, I am not sharing something new with you. You already knew this. You already know about this. You've already heard about this. You once knew about this. I'm not telling you thing, anything new. So the false prophets, the false teachers want to woo their audience with something new. While Jude is saying, I have nothing new to tell you. So let me tell you this, church, when I get up here to preach or when any, uh, anybody else gets up here to preach, 
Our thing is not to tell you something new. Our job is to reinforce the truth that you have already learned. Amen. We're not up here to try to woo you with something that you, are, that you don't know, but we reinforce that which you already learned. And then he gives an example. He starts in verse number five. And these apostates, these people who turned away, I love this. I mean, I love it. He says, I want to tell you something you've already know. These false teachers are coming in secretly. These false teachers are coming in to tell you something new, something that you've never heard before. But I am telling you something you already know. And I want to remind you of what the scripture states. Isn't that what's happening now? I mean, I said this last week, and I don't want to harp about it, but it's such a prime example. We have false Christian religions that their whole, their whole viewpoint is based upon secret rituals and secret things that you do. And you go away to a temple, and you do secret handshakes, and you do secret things that nobody else knows. It's, it's secret because that is the way to heaven. That's a form of Gnosticism. That's a form of false teaching. It's a heresy because nothing is new. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not secret. It's not secret. Can I hear an amen? It is not secret. Amen. Verse number five, he says, I want to remind you, though, that you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved his people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them to those who did not believe. Notice the word they were saved and notice the word they were destroyed. They were saved, but they were destroyed. They were saved. They were destroyed. They, they, they were brought out of the land of Egypt. They were saved, but in the end they were destroyed as a result of their unbelief. They did not believe. So this is the first group of people that he mentions. This first group of people are apostates. These first people, turn, they're a form of a, apostasy. They turn their back because they did not believe. Number six, what about the angels who did not keep their proper dominion or abode, but left their own abode, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day? Now, there's many different speculations of what this means, but if you go to 2 Peter, 2 Peter refers to these angels being reserved or bound by chains. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and this is something that we can talk about later, but uh, many different uh, opinions and uh, interpretations about what this means, but. Uh, uh, one class of thought is during the time of Noah or, you know, another class of time is uh, Genesis chapter six. The sons of God came down and mated with the women and they formed giants. And these 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 sons of God that came down and mated with humans are now fallen angels. You know, and there's many different things, but we'll get into that later. But he says these angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved an everlasting chains into darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse number seven, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, similar manner, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, have gone after strange flesh and set for us an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he gives three examples of apostasy, of people turning away. Number one, he gives the example of Egypt or the, the children of God being delivered from Egypt. Afterwards, they were destroyed. In verse number five, he says... The reason they were destroyed is because of their unbelief. Everybody say unbelief. Number six, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting chain. Pride. They left what was their own dominion, their own abode. They left in a spirit of pride. And because of that, he has reserved them in everlasting chains for that great day of judgment. Number three, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and how these people, the cities around them, gave themselves over to strange flesh, suffering vengeance of eternal fire, immorality, sexual perversion. He says these three groups of people turned their back on what they knew was true because of an unbelieving heart. They were saved, but in the end they were destroyed because they did not continue to believe. They did not continue to believe. And that, my friend, is the key. If we don't continue to believe, then we will lose out in the end. We must continue to believe. I don't care if you can recall when you were saved. I mean, there is, you know, 
uh, I don't know what in history, I don't know if it was the Puritans, Dave, you can correct me, but they had, uh, if my history stands correct, but there was one form of religious uh, denomination that was so strict about membership, you had to recall when you were saved and, and when your conversion experience happened. And that's all good and fine, but I don't really necessarily uh, need to know when you were saved. I need to know if you are believing right now at the present moment. And if you're going to continue to believe in the future and the problem that these people had, they did not continue to believe. And because they did not continue to believe, they were destroyed in the end. It's your continual belief. Number three, it was pride. Is that right? It was pride that caused these angels to leave their proper domain and they were now reserved in uh, chains of darkness. Now, if I stand to be corrected, this is also mentioned in the book of Second um, Peter, if I can find it real quick. Second Peter, he's also mentioned, I don't know if I can find it. Second Peter, he mentions this, this um, yes, Second Peter chapter 2, verse number 4. He also mentions the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions the ancient world but was saved by Noah, verse number 4. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You will see a similarity between the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter. All right? So um, look at this. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Does this not sound like Jude? Sounds like very much like Jude. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah and the eight people, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly and deliver the righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conversation of the wicked. Very similar. So Jude, I believe, is referring to what Peter is writing here. And these angels left their own abode because of pride. And you see the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into strange flesh because of immorality, sexual perversion. And isn't that what's happening now in our culture, in our modern secular society? We have church people who once was faithful to God here every service, and now they no longer serve God because they are not continually to believe. They're not tr continually trusting. They're not continually believing the master. With people in pride and arrogance, exalting their self, people lifting themselves up in ego, they're people egotistical and pride, narcissism, shuddering their way to a devil's hell, baptized pagans sitting underneath of a church steeple, thinking that we're okay, unmoved by the presence of God, unmoved by the doctrine that's being preached. Their heart has become hard, and as their heart is hard, their eyes are dry, unmoved by the presence of God puffed ourselves up in pride and knowledge, our degrees, our, our accomplishments, things that we have done and refuse to submit to the hand of Almighty God. It's happening right in front of us. And sexual immorality. We have forsaken, we have forsaken theology for the name of love. We have forsaken truth for the name of love. Love demands that we change. Amen. Grace demands that we are made into Christ-likeness. So he gives us three examples, don't he? Three examples of apostates, of people turning their back on the Lord. And then he goes on in verse number 8. He says, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. Look at verse number 8. Jude, verse number 8. He says, these dreamers. Now, who is he referring to as these dreamers? These dreamers are the false prophets. These dreamers are the false teachers. He's saying, these teachers are dreaming. They're having dreams and they're having visions. But their dreams and their visions are leading you to a lifestyle that defile the flesh. They're leading a lifestyle that is defiling the flesh. They're not preaching the truth. Their authority is found in their dreams and their visions. And their dreams and their visions is leading people to defile the flesh. 
They're creeping in unnoticed. These, these teachers are rejecting authority. You see that salad buffet Christianity. I'm spiritual, but I don't need to be a part of a community. They reject authority and they speak evil of authority. Isn't that what's happening right now? Let's defund the police. Let's get rid of authority. Let's cast down authority. Let's break all the monuments in the world. Let's cast down all of our traditions. Let's reject authority. It's exactly what's happening. And we speak evil of authority. Let me tell you, not all authority is righteous. We know that. We know they make mistakes. And we know that what they do sometimes is evil. And justice needs to prevail. And we need to speak against it. But that doesn't give us an excuse to reject all authority. Amen. Can I hear an amen? amen? It doesn't give an excuse to reject all authority. But they reject authority. He goes on to say... He gives... He gives... Goes on to say, but... Let me say this. He's giving these characteristics of these false teachers, isn't he? I mean, he's given a list of characteristics. He says, you know, they're, they're dreamers, but they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak against authority. Because I believe that a person's life will ultimately show a person's heart. A person's life will show a person's heart. Heart. Say that with me. A person's life will show a person's heart. Say it again. A will show a person's heart. And the false prophets, their character, their attitude, and their actions are being made known. He gives, he gives an example of authority here. He says these false teachers are rejecting authority. He says he gives an example of a clash of authority. He gives an example of tension with authority. He says Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil when disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he gives an example of, of authority and how authority works. Because I believe that the devil was an archangel. You have, you have Gabriel is an archangel. Is that right? Michael is an archangel. And I do believe that Lucifer was an archangel. And these archangels primarily was over one-third of the heavens. One of them was over a group of the, the angels. Another was over a group of another angels. Another of them was a group of one-third of the angels. They had jurisdiction over the angels. And we realized that in the book of Revelation that that old serpent, remember, he took his tail and wiped out one-third of the stars, who was speaking of the heavenly host. He took one-third of his jurisdiction. He took one-third of his angels with him. That archangel who was in authority took one-third of the angels with him. And Michael is an archangel. So you have two archangels fighting here. But the archangels understood authority. One of them was a fallen archangel, and the other archangel was a godly archangel. But no matter, they had authority. And what happened? Michael, the archangel, said, listen, Lucifer, you're an archangel. You're a fallen one. I'm an archangel. We're both archangels. I ain't going to argue this with you. We'll go to the person above us, and that is the Lord. So the Lord rebukes you. Amen. Verse number 10, he goes on, he says, but... They speak evil, whatever they do not know, but whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, these things, they corrupt themselves. In other words, they don't know what they're talking about, but they're acting like animals, brute beast. They are, they are infused with immorality. He goes on to say, but these false teachers are like these people. They're like, he says, they're like Cain. Woe to Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. He says, they've gone the way of Cain. He says, and they've gone the way of Balaam, and they've gone the way of Korah. These false teachers are going the way of Cain. They're going the way of Balaam, going the way of Korah. What about the way of Cain? What did Cain do? Cain killed his righteous brother Abel. 
He slandered and killed his brother Abel. So Jude is making the point that these false teachers will slander those who appear to be more righteous than they are. His Cain's brother was Abel, and the Bible says he was a righteous man. Cain killed Abel. Jude is saying these false teachers are going the way of Cain. In other words, they will slander people who are more righteous or appear to be more righteous than they are. They will speak against people or slander against people who seem to be more righteous than they are. They've gone the way of Balaam. Remember, the, Balaam was the prophet who was hired to speak a curse against the nation of Israel. He says these, these false teachers are in it. You know, Balaam did it for profit. He was hired to do it. These false teachers are in it for the buck. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the monkey. You remember what... what, what the apostle said that if you're going to be a shepherd over God's people, you cannot be in it for filthy lucre. Can't be in it for the buck. He says, so number one, he says they'll slander you. He's, they slander all those who appear to be more righteous than they are. Number two, they're in it for the buck, Balaam. And number three, Korah. What did Korah do? Korah rebelled against Moses. Korah and his company rebelled against the word of Moses and his authority. And because they rebelled against Moses, God opened up the earth and swallowed them. And Jude says these false prophets have gone the way of Korah. In other words, they reject any divine authority in their life. They hear from God just like you do. So since I hear from God, I'll do whatever I want to do. We throw the God card out a lot. I get so sick of it. So sick of it. It's, I have to take a Tylenol to deal with it. I get so sick of it. Because this is God said, God said, God said, God said, God said, God said, God said. And then when it doesn't work out, God is not bipolar. And I'm not being disgraceful to people who struggle with that. And does God speak to people? Yes. Does God speak to people? Yes, he does. But... He speaks through the word, through the impression of the spirit, through authority. He speaks to us. And, and we have we have heard that some ever since I've been pastoring. I keep hearing over oh, God's God, God, God's God. I've heard people say God told me to marry some and they're married to someone. God does not go against the Bible. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I've heard people say God said I'm supposed to marry Charlie. Well, you're married to Susie. God's not going to tell you to marry Charlie when you're married to Susie. Can I hear an amen? Praise God. I was preaching revival in Nakona, Texas, and a woman comes up to me. She was 80 years old. 80 years old. I, I, 80, she, you know, and there's nothing wrong with 80-year-olds, but she came up and she had her cane, and she came up to me. She said, Brother Pennington. I said, yes, ma'am. Brother Pennington, I heard the Lord say that I'm supposed to sleep with my pastor. I about fell out on the... I was like, what did I just hear? <laughs> I said, ma'am, you did not hear from the Lord. Amen. You have heard from the devil. <laughs> no joke. How do you know the Lord is speaking to you? You know the Lord is speaking to you when it's, if it's not found in the word. Number one, it's found through the people in your life. It's found through confirmation in your life that you know that the Lord is speaking confirmation through the word if it's not found specifically in the word and you're not doing anything against the word then the Holy Spirit will send people in your life by authority or by confirmation to confirm that what you're doing is correct and Korah they've gone the way of Korah they've rejected authority and then lastly in closing in the last four minutes he says, he says, verse number 12, I'm going to finish this next week. He says, these people are like spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about their winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
Verse number 13, he goes on raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars whom is reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. He, he says these people are like this. He says, number one, he says they're like a love feast. Number one, love feast. He says they're like a love feast. And you know what a love feast was? A love feast was a potluck dinner after they had church. They called it a, they called it a love feast. Now, how many like potluck dinners? Okay, about five of you. Okay, and that's okay. I mean, some potluck dinners are real good, all right? And so uh, they had a potluck dinner, a love feast, after their gathering. It wasn't the communion. It was a love feast. And he says it's like a spot in, the, in your love feast. In other words, it looks real, the table looks real good, but there is some spoiled food somewhere on the table. He says, they're like clouds without water. In other words, these people look full. They look like they have rain. They look like they can produce, but in the end, they don't produce anything. In other words, they have a lot of words to say. They act like they got rain. They look like they're full. They look like they're anointed. They look like they're on the top of the game. But in the end, they can't produce. He says these people are like trees. He says they're like what? Trees? Autumn trees without fruit. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. He said they're like trees. Autumn trees. Autumn trees. Their, their fruit is falling off. They look strong, they look healthy, but it's fallen off. And they're twice dead. And they're only dead once, but they're twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves foaming at the mouth. What, what happens when waves gush up against the seashore? Whatever's in the sea sometimes will be pulled right up to the seashore. And he says, these people are like raging waves. They, they come in boisterous. They come in with a lot of things to say. They come in with great pomp and circumstance, but really they're pulling up trash. They're pulling up immorality. If you look closely, that's what they have to offer. He says, in wandering stars, he says, what is a wandering star? They start out, a wandering star starts out with bright light, but eventually it burns out quickly. He says these false teachers are just like that. He says they start out burning bright, but then they burn out. Amen. He says, he says, it goes on to verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these things also. He says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. We're going to pick up with verse number 14 next week.